Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word at this time to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 2 and verses 1 through 16. Romans chapter 2, and we'll be reading the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 16. Let's give attention now to God's holy word, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my Gospel. May the Lord bless the reading of His Holy Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's blessing upon His Word this morning. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, focusing upon our attention upon verse 5 and verse 16. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
Then verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my Gospel. The Apostle Paul here is addressing a very crucial subject for everybody here right now. Everybody out there, everybody in here, everybody walking the face of planet earth. He's dealing with the day of judgment. And that is something that as Christians, perhaps we don't think about enough. That last great day, our membership vows you can see in the front cover of your psalm book at the very end of those covenant vows when we join as communicant members. Do you make this profession of faith and purpose in the presence of God in humble reliance upon His grace as you desire to give your account with joy at the last great day? There is coming a last great day. It hasn't come yet, but um, you know, people mock the idea of a final judgment because it's unprecedented. We've never seen anything like that. Well, yeah, that's kind of the nature of the case. It's the last day. There's only one of them, and it only happens once, and you only have one life to live in preparation for that last great day. Your life in this world, in many respects, is a gestation period for eternity. That, that's really what it is. And I'm not suggesting that the mundane aspects of our lives are unimportant. We can glorify God whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. We do it all for His glory. Absolutely. But ultimately, the only thing that's going to matter ultimately and eternally is whether we did it for His glory. Whether we use that food and drink or whatever it is as a preparation for eternity. Your life began at conception, but in a way, your life will not be fully formed until this last great day. In the same way, we believe that uh, a child is uh, conceived in the womb and its life begins at that moment, but we celebrate that child's birthday when the child comes forth into the world. In the same way, our earthly lives are but the gestation period. It's just the womb for eternity. What is determined, what is declared on this last great day, this day of judgment when Christ returns, that is who we are unchangeably for all eternity. That defines our life for eons upon eons upon eons, world without end. And I wonder if we think about that. In fact, sometimes, even as Christians, we struggle to think about that simply because we can't wrap our minds around eternity. When I try to think about eternity, even since I was a a young child, in a sense, heaven for me was almost scarier than hell in the sense that just the fact that it's unending puts a fear in me. Even if I know I'm right with God, there's a sense of trying to conceive of a life that never ends and it's troubling to think about. It's troubling to think about being annihilated. I mean, what's the alternative? Both alternatives are troubling. Whether we live forever and it just goes on and on forever 
world without end, or whether we, poof, we're snuffed out of existence, either one is troubling. Either one is beyond what our human minds can comprehend, and that's what makes it troubling. But we have to deal with it. We must deal with eternity. And we have a limited amount of time to do it. We have a limited amount of time to understand what God has revealed about it and to make our preparations for eternity. And this day of judgment is, in many ways, the bridge between time and eternity. You have time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning. And then you have the end of history when Christ returns and brings in this day of judgment. And that day of judgment then is a bridge that opens up the way into everlasting joy or everlasting shame and torment. World without end. So we need to consider this day of judgment as a bridge between time and eternity. And again, we only have limited time to consider it. And we don't have until the day of judgment to consider it. Really, we have between now and the day of our death because it's appointed for everyone to die once and then comes the judgment. Then comes that preliminary judgment that sends our soul to heaven or hell awaiting the return of Christ and the universal judgment of all mankind when He raises them all from the dead and judges and separates the sheep from the goats. We only have a limited time to think about this. The moment we die, our relationship with God at that point is what it is for all eternity. Where the tree falls, there it shall lie. What your relationship with God is at the moment of your death is fundamentally your relationship with God for all eternity. And if you have a good relationship with God, if you're saved and saved by and indwelt with Christ and His Holy Spirit, if you're a true Christian... You've been clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's washed away your sins and made you right with God. If that is the case at the time of your death, then you're with Christ for all eternity. And that good relationship will get better and better. But if you're not right with God at the moment of your death, that enmity between you and God will be set in stone for all eternity and it will only get worse and worse from that moment on. So this is the decisive day. The day of judgment. And it really forces us to reflect upon how temporary and vain this life is. This life in itself. Now, if this life becomes a preparation for eternity and it's lived to the glory of God with an eye to the final judgment, then every aspect of this life is meaningful and has some eternal value. But as Solomon explored and found out by experience in the book of Ecclesiastes, when this life is considered merely under the sun in a merely human way, it's found to be Utterly aggravating, meaningless, vain, and temporary. Because God has created mankind in His own image with eternity in our hearts 
so that only God can satisfy us, so that only that eternity that is beyond our comprehension, that transcendent God Himself, only the eternal God can fill and satisfy us. And when we don't have that, when we're living under the sun in this world and of this world, we find that there's no justice in the world. There's no discernible correlation between somebody's character and somebody's works and their circumstances. You can have very good people that have a very bad experience in this life. You can have very wicked people and they're living it up wearing their pride as a necklace, as the Bible says. There is no justice under the sun. Solomon points it out again and again. And there seems to be no reward. The wise and the foolish, the good and the bad, they all meet the same end. And, and he urges us, he urges us in this cyclical world where people live and die and things come and go and nothing is new under the sun and there's no justice, no meaning, no reward that's discernible in our circumstances under the sun. He says, think about your end. Better is the house of mourning and weeping and grief than the house of feasting. At least at a funeral, you're met with the reality of where you're heading. And you can think about reality. The house of feasting and mirth, it has its place perhaps, but you know, you, you drink a glass of wine, you forget about your troubles, but the house of trouble, the house of mourning, forces us to grapple with the temporariness and the vanity of this life and our need to prepare for something beyond it. Something that is everlasting. At the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, you find Solomon indicating to us what he has discovered. This is the ultimate Amazon review, right? Solomon has tested all the products. He's tested all the different... Uh, benefits of earthly wealth and prosperity. He's tested all these different relationships and entertainments and wisdom and philosophy. All the things the world says, well, this is going to fill your heart. This is going to give you lasting meaning. And he says, at the end of the day, it's all vanity unless you're remembering your Creator and looking to this day of judgment. He says at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 12-14, through 14, that man's all, man's all, man's substance, who and what man is and ought to be, the meaning of humanity is summed up in this, that we ought to fear God and keep His commandments for God will bring all of it into judgment. Even our deepest, darkest secrets. Unless we get above the sun to the Son of Righteousness and to God Himself, our Creator, unless we get beyond this physical world and this vain temporary existence to fear the living God, the eternal God, and to obey Him, then it's just vanity. We need to obey Him. And that involves, getting back to the book of Romans here, obeying the truth. And what Paul is saying to the Jewish people here, as he's just critiqued the Gentiles and shown that they are sinners under the wrath of God, he brings this same judgment upon the Jewish people. And and he shows especially that not only did they reject the existence and attributes of God in creation and conscience, but they failed to obey the truth of God's Word. 
They didn't obey the truth. They didn't receive the Old Testament Scriptures as a means of confronting their sin, convicting them of their need for God's appointed Savior, the Messiah. They didn't see it as as something that would circumcise their hearts, that would take away the flesh, and that would turn them to the sovereign grace of God, the righteousness of God that Paul is setting before them. And we saw last time in Romans 6 that he says that they would not receive God's righteousness through Christ. They thought they had their own righteousness. They thought they, in their character and in their deeds, were adequately right with God because they had the law, they had the covenants, they had these outward ordinances of the Old Testament, they're good to go. And they wouldn't submit to God's righteousness. The aspect of God's revelation that they first and foremost refused to submit to was the Gospel. That's the part of God's Old Testament revelation they would not receive. They wouldn't obey that truth. They wouldn't submit to the righteousness that God provides. You understand what I'm saying here? In Romans, the heart of Paul's thesis is that when we stand before God on Judgment Day and He brings all these secrets into the light of day, every single one of us will be shown to be undeserving of heaven and deserving of eternal hell fire. We will be shown to have been sinners in our thoughts and attitudes, in our words and conversation, in our works and in our negligence, in our duty. God will reveal that at the last day. And so if you think you're going to get to heaven in your own righteousness, in your own religiosity, Paul is saying that is absolutely false. And sadly, that's what the Pharisees were teaching. That's what the professing covenant people of God, the Jewish people in that day, that's what they were believing. And Paul says you're on a collision course with hell and with judgment. You are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Every day that goes by, you are accumulating sin debt. You are accumulating liability to God's wrath and punishment for all eternity. 365 five days a year. So, if you're 30 years old, I was doing this on the back with my sermon notes, um, 365 days a year, 30 years, I came up with just under 11,000 sins. You can correct that later, but um, think about that. Over 10,000 sins in 30 years. That's if you commit one sin a day. One sin a day which, if we understand the law of God, that would be amazing to, to only commit one sin a day. And if, if you think that you've committed only one sin a day, you've just committed your, your sin for the day because that's very prideful when you look at the law of God and all that it requires of us. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we could go on. But the point is, that's just, think about 10,000 sins. Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden for eating the forbidden fruit. That one sin, though there were other related sins, but primarily that one sin brought about all the misery we see in the world today. What's going to happen when you stand before God with 10,000 sins? And in reality, let's be honest, how many sins we commit a day? Probably hundreds of thousands of sins brought out on the last day 
you need to give up your own righteousness and admit that it is at best, on your best day, your best moment, it is as filthy rags in the sight of God. And you need to submit to God's righteousness. Jesus Christ came into the world. He perfectly obeyed every commandment of God. Never sinned. Holy, harmless, undefiled, perfect righteousness. Even when the Father commanded Him to go to the cross to die for the sins of believers, He said, not My will, but Your will be done. He was obedient. He was righteous. Not for Himself, as if Jesus needed to prove that He was righteous. He was righteous. He fulfilled all righteousness in His thoughts, words, and actions throughout all of His 33 years in this world. He did that. He did it for those who put their trust in Him. And He died as the spotless Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So if you put your trust in Christ, all of your sins are punished at the cross. All 10,000, 20,000, 200,000. They were all laid upon Christ on the cross. The Lord laid upon Him the iniquity of us all who believe in Him. And they have been punished. The law of God, the justice of God is fully satisfied. And then in Him, the Bible says, we become the righteousness of God. We receive that perfect obedience of Christ. It clothes us and covers us and gives us a perfect legal righteousness just as if there was a million dollars in somebody's bank account and they transferred that amount of money into your bank account. And now it's yours. It's from them, but it's now yours. That's the righteousness of Christ that the Jews were refusing to receive by faith. They didn't want to confess that their own righteousness was actually in the debit column and they're actually treasuring up wrath for the day of wrath. They didn't want to admit that the only way that they could be righteous in God's sight is by admitting that they're not superior. That they're not particularly and uniquely superior to anyone. That they're the chiefs of sinners and that they need the Lord Jesus Christ as their perfect righteousness to prepare for this day of wrath. Well, Paul is confronting them and he's urging them to seek for glory and honor and immortality not in themselves and in their own works. That's impossible. But eventually he's going to present them in chapter 3 with the good news of the Gospel. That they can find all the glory and honor and immortality that they could possibly enjoy in Christ. In the Lord, our righteousness. Now as he's bringing the reality of the day of judgment before his own kinsmen according to the flesh, you can see the reality and the necessity of this day of wrath. This day of wrath. Now, I've been speaking of it as the day of judgment, but notice Paul calls it the day of wrath. Because for everyone who is outside of Christ, and we come into the world, born walking along the broad way that leads to destruction, we come into the world outside of Christ. So everyone who remains in that natural condition, who has not been born again by the Spirit of God, is under the wrath of God. Ephesians 2 says that Everyone by nature, even Paul himself, circumcised on the eighth day, but he says by nature, children of wrath, just like all the others. And we can see here as he describes this day of judgment and of wrath that that there's just a reality, a necessity, an inescapability 
if we can say that, of this day of wrath. Biblically speaking, obviously, it's inescapable. I mean, you read from Genesis to Revelation, you can't avoid it. As the Bible continues to unfold God's special revelation of Himself and His plan, the, the, the further along you get into the Bible, the more you see references to the day of judgment, all culminating in the book of Revelation, which describes that fiery wrath from heaven which, uh, which consumes God's adversaries at the last day. Uh, we, we saw Solomon discussing the day of judgment. It's all throughout the Psalms. Jesus talked more about it than anyone else in all the Bible. And so biblically, it's there. If you're a Christian, that means you believe the Bible to be the Word of God without error in, in, in everything it says. And it says a lot about this, this day of judgment. So it's inescapable, but it's also inescapable psychologically for us as humans made in the image of God. It's inescapable to the point where Paul says at the end of Romans 1, he says, verse 32, that even the Gentiles who didn't have a Bible, they're without law, they didn't even have the Bible, but they knew the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only did they do the same, but they also approved of these things, but they knew in their conscience And Paul says in our chapter that on the last day, that book of the conscience is going to be opened and the the, the people of the Gentiles who didn't have a Bible are going to see from the witness of their own conscience that they're guilty before God. That in fact, all along they knew the reality that there's coming a day of judgment. They knew it was coming. They knew it was inescapable and necessary in the back of their mind. They suppressed it in unrighteousness. And now, it's inescapably set before their eyes. Psychologically, we all know. We all know. It's inborn in us to desire justice. Why is it that most major sports leagues have adopted instant replay? Because people aren't content unless you get the call right. People aren't content. People want to see righteousness, fairness, accuracy. And it just doesn't sit well with them. And in terms of both sides, right? If a call goes in the team's favor or goes against them, there's still a sense where, I mean, I remember watching, um, there was a, a, a closer who got his 300th save. If, if you're not into baseball, maybe that statement makes no sense. But um, there's a pitcher who, who got a, ma- a major milestone after striking out a batter, but the pitch was nowhere near the strike zone. I mean, it was, it was horrific. And even he, after, you know, they're, all of a sudden everybody's celebrating, the guy struck out, they won the game, he passed this milestone. But he just kind of looked around and, you know, the cameras picked it up and said something into his glove and shook his head because even he recognized, even though he benefited from it, this was not right. This was not right. Uh, We want justice. We want accuracy. When the government deceives us or deceives other people or there are accusations along those lines, we perk up in our attention because we want to find out what happened, how it happened, who needs to be punished, who needs to be removed from office, what needs to happen, heads need to roll. We have an inward desire for justice and accuracy. And when we don't see that, it leads us to apathy and depression and 
you look at uh, throughout the Bible, Ecclesiastes, Solomon is wrestling with this, just the misery of watching injustice and oppression continue all around us in this fallen world. And we have an inward sense that that's wrong and it bothers us. If that was just mother nature, evolution taking its course, might makes right, there's oppression in the world, why why would we not be okay with it? Why would it bother us? It bothers us because you're not an evolved chimpanzee, you're a human being with a soul, and God has created you in the image of Himself, a God of justice and truth, and you want justice and truth. Now that justice and truth may lead you, in a sense, you may have a variety of ideas about what justice and truth are, but you have a desire for things to be set right. And Psalm 73, Asaph, we sang it before the service, Asaph was struggling This godly believer, yet he's struggling because the wicked are prospering. Because the proud are gloating and oppressing and there's so much taking place that is unjust and nobody seems to be swooping in with justice or punishment. Nobody is doing anything about it. My friend, that doesn't sit well with any of us. And the fact is, if you take out this concept of a day of judgment it leads to atheism. It's it's utterly atheistic. If there is no correspondence between between obedience or morality and justice, if there's no punishment of evil and people can just do whatever they want and trample people underfoot and rape and pillage and murder and deceive and live it up and laugh it up and die comfortably in their beds, then there is no God. So if you believe in God... 80 plus percent, so they say, if you believe in God, then you know there's a final judgment. You may be suppressing that with respect to yourself, but it's necessary. Psychologically, we couldn't even function without it. And my friends, the revelation of God's righteous wrath here in our text, this righteous wrath against sin on this great day of wrath, it will transcend anything you've ever seen or experienced. Paul speaks of this not only as the day of wrath, but the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So it's not just a day of wrath. It's a day in which God's wrath against sin, God's just and righteous judgment against sin will be revealed. It will be discovered. It's the same word as uh, the apocalypse. The, the unveiling, the discovering that you see with the book of Revelation. God unveiling His plan for new covenant history. But here, on the day of judgment, it will be unveiled for the first time. We saw in Romans 1 verse 18 that the wrath of God presently is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So there's a sense in which There's something of God's justice in the world. If you look with biblical spectacles, you can begin to see God's providence. You can begin to see His just judgments in the world as a precursor to this day of wrath. But it's nothing. It's nothing. It's a faint foreshadowing. It's nothing compared to the wrath that is to come. The flood was devastating. Every human on planet earth, men, women, children, elderly, infants, pregnant mothers, everybody outside of Noah's household 
They refused to go into the ark. They were utterly drowned and destroyed in the flood. And Paul says, even though you know something about the flood, and even for the people that were there experiencing the flood, this day of wrath will be a revelation to you. It will be something new. Something beyond even what you've experienced. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord, out of heaven, sends forth fire and brimstone and incinerates these cities of the plain. But even for those people that experience that, this day of wrath will be a revelation. It will go far beyond even what they themselves have experienced of the righteous judgment of God. We could think of Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the ten plagues and the Red Sea coming crashing down. Nothing. Drop in the bucket compared to the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We're told that this day of wrath involves indignation and wrath. Indignation and wrath. We read that in at the end of verse 8. Indignation and wrath. Well, these words indicate God's hatred of sin And because that sin adheres and inheres so so inherently to the sinner, God hates the sinner. God hates the sin and the sinner. And we could look up passages that point that out. Um, God's love in some ways, generally speaking, we see it in His providence. He gives people good gifts and so on. But in terms of the final judgment, God is declaring his hatred, his wrath against the sin and the sinner for all eternity. And and that's the idea here. Indignation speaks of a sort of fresh and immediate impulse of wrath, of displeasure and hatred and just being completely uh, to abhor and be disgusted and to turn away and to reject and to repudiate. It's a fresh, immediate impulse. And so it shows how God's nature is so categorically contrary to sin that the moment, as it were, when it, when it comes before His eyes, there's a response of revulsion. He hates it. He despises it. And, and He despises those who love it and would prefer it to Him. A fresh and immediate impulse. Of course, God is unchangeable, but it's, it's presenting to us just the magnitude and the, the, the zeal and the vigor of God's wrath, His indignation. And the word wrath describes a more permanent, habitual disposition of the hatred of sin and of sinners. That God evaluates them as completely uh, ugly, distasteful, unpleasant. It, it's horrific. And it's not just a fresh impulse that might change, but it's a habitual disposition, a permanent reality. And hell, whatever else it is, whatever else flows from that disposition of wrath and anger that God has against the unconverted and against the wicked, whatever else it is, it is a hatred and an anger that is as fresh as if it was just ignited by God's holiness in response to sin. You know yourself that when you encounter injustice or sin and you, you encounter it in a fresh way, sometimes it just really affects you. 
in a more powerful way than it does later on when you've been desensitized. This is telling us that God's anger and hatred against sin and sinners in hell is such that it's fresh, it's immediate, but it's also sustained and permanent and habitual. It is, hell is hopeless and full of despair because God's wrath is kindled every moment, but there's no hope of it ever being abated, of God's wrath ever ceasing to be upon the sinner. We see another couple words here in in our passage. Verse 9, tribulation and anguish. Tribulation and anguish. The word tribulation in Greek takes this idea of pressure and affliction. Being surrounded. Being encompassed. Being pummeled. You know, it's like the room that's that's slowly caving in pressure, affliction, trouble, adversity. And the word anguish, similarly to the two words about anger and hatred, the word anguish sort of takes tribulation to the next level. It involves a pressure or affliction or adversity that is overwhelming and unrelenting, that is utterly distressing from which there is absolutely no relief. And you can see the, an illustration of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says, We are hard-pressed on every side. That's our word for tribulation. Same word. Yet not crushed. So the believer has adversity, affliction, trouble, pressure, I don't need to tell you that if you're a Christian. You know that. You're going through that. You're going through a lot of stuff right now, perhaps. And Paul says, same with us. We're hard-pressed with these afflictions and pressures and troubles and this adversity. Yet, for the believer, we are not crushed. We're not overwhelmed. It's not unrelenting and, and filling us with distress and despair that utterly crushes our spirit. No. Because Christ lives in us. He bears our burdens. He helps us. He sustains us. And we have hope of eternal life. You think these sufferings are bad? Paul says it's a momentary light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. So, we're not crushed. It's a light affliction when we think about eternity. And we're not really focusing on that, but that's a practical application when you're dealing with pressure and affliction in the Christian life. You need to think about eternity. But you see these two words. It's utter tribulation and anguish. Straightness. Being squeezed. Being crushed by despair. We know that this wrath against sin transcends anything we've experienced because we see the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane bearing it, drinking the cup, looking into the cup, taking in the reality of this infinite wrath of an infinite God against sin and the infinite Son of God in human flesh whom we would think, well, He would never be overwhelmed. He would never be... His heart would never break under the pressure. He would never cry out in agony. He is the infinite God in human flesh. But my friends... The Lord Jesus Christ Himself cried out in agony. Uh, We see many examples of the anguish of His soul. Psalm 69 verse 20. 
Reproach has broken my heart. Now, he wasn't crushed. We're not saying that. But in its own way, we know what it's like to have a broken heart. This wrath and anger and sustained hatred of God against sin was upon his soul. And it broke his heart. And I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, and I found none. My friends, hell is devoid of comfort. It is devoid of the God of comfort. It is devoid of anyone in hell who has any comfort to give you. It is, it is comfortless for all eternity. Jesus experienced that in principle in Gethsemane and on the cross of Calvary. The next verse uh, they also gave me gall for my food and, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar. That's a prophecy that was fulfilled at Calvary. Uh, you see it as well, Psalm 116, verse 3. The pains of death surrounded me and the pangs of Sheol, which is the Old Testament word for hell, oftentimes the pangs, the pains of Sheol, hell, laid hold of me I found trouble and sorrow. Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utterly burdened by the infinite wrath of God upon him. And uh, it's interesting, he also says something that, that should get our attention in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 and verse 44. And being in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And uh, he, he says elsewhere that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. So if the Son of God was overwhelmed by God's wrath and judgment, how are any of us going to fare? I mean, do you really think that on Judgment Day you're not going to be overwhelmed by the wrath and righteous judgment of God? Do you really think that you're going to look back on your life focusing on the fleeting and temporary things of this world, refusing to get right with God when you had the chance? Do you really think you're going to look back on that and say, well, yeah, that was a good decision. My friend, you are going to be utterly speechless on the Day of Judgment. Silenced by your own conscience, by your own guilt, by your own regret. Today is the day of salvation. Don't make that mistake. Because you will fall under a judgment of which the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What does hell involve? I don't know. And I don't want to ever know by experience. I don't want to find out firsthand what hell is like. I want to put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be a sheep of the great and good shepherd so that He holds me in His hands and no one can snatch me away. I don't want to fall into the hands of the living God in judgment. My friends, this judgment will be just and righteous. And perhaps that's the worst part. Because you might be saying, well, this is unfair, but the thing is, on Judgment Day, you will be exposed and it will be shown that every aspect of that sin debt that is credited to your account is fully earned. 
It's fully earned. The wages of sin is death, and your wages have been accumulating moment by moment, minute by minute, hour by hour, day after day, week, month, year, decades. It's all been calculated. It's all been treasured up in your account. And God keeps the books. And the books are going to be opened. And and those books are, you know, it doesn't matter how many IRS agents want to go after. Those books are, are, are perfect. Those books have every jot and tittle perfectly calculated and recorded and your final judgment the verdict the the judgment the varying degrees of wrath that each person receives it's going to be exact to the point where you will be mesmerized at how precise and accurate it is you will have nothing to say and Paul says your conscience once those secrets have been revealed your conscience will have to bear witness and accuse you. And and my friends, that's one of the worst parts of hell. Is hell a fiery barbecue pit? Well, probably that and worse. But perhaps the worst aspect of hell is the accusing conscience. And you know what that's like when you've done something and you've done something wrong, you've done something foolish, and the consequences have gotten away from you and you sense it. My friends, your conscience will be accusing you every day moment in hell and you won't have those diversions to you know you're not going to be able to have a glass of wine in hell you're not going to, jesus on the cross they gave him wine to to be an, an um, anesthetic he didn't take it in hell there's no wine there's no alcohol there's no diversion there's nothing to get your mind off of it the conscience will accuse you of these things and god will reveal these things justly and fairly everyone will be judged without exception and without partiality and everyone we're told will be judged individually notice verse 6 each one verse 9 every soul jew or greek verse 11 and 12 there's no partiality with god as many as have done this will receive this as many as have done that will receive that my friends at the end of the day you will be judged along with everybody else, without exception, without favoritism, doesn't matter what group you're a part of, what demographic you're a part of, it doesn't matter. Unless you have been born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's why you need to make your calling and election sure. We've seen Romans 2, the word you appears some 30 odd times. 30 some times, Paul makes it a point to say, you, you need to think about this. Today in our society, everybody's concerned about which group, which political group, which social group, which gender class, which everything, this, that, and the other, all these different groups that I'm a part of that define me. My friend, you will be defined by your works, by your works, by your your conscious thoughts, words, and actions, you will be defined in the judgment of God by who you are and what you've done in accordance with the moral law of God. Period. doesn't matter what group you're a part of, what nation you hail from, what, what your family is like, what your religious background is, what church or denomination or demographic you hail from. It does not matter. It doesn't matter. You'll be judged 
individually and justly. And the standard of this judgment is perfect obedience to the law of God. We're not going to get into it at length. But read verses 7-15. through He says it again and again that verse 9, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Every soul of man who does evil. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory. The Bible is plain and this is one of the most obvious teachings of the New Testament and the Old. That God's standard of perfect righteousness for the entrance into heaven is perfect obedience to His commandments. And I know it is the fact that some of this type of language is sometimes used in connection with the believer's sanctification and whether or not somebody is born again and living a generally righteous life versus living in sin. But, but Paul in this context is dealing with who will be justified and declared righteous at the day of judgment. And it's not going to be the hearers of the law I sat in church and heard sermons. I heard the law. I heard the Bible. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. The doers of the law who will be justified. And Galatians chapter 3 makes clear, verse 11, that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. It says this is evident for the just shall live by faith. Why is it that you can't be justified by your own good works? By the fact that you're not as bad as somebody else? Well, he answers it in the previous verse in Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue. There's that patience. Continuance in doing good. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. He says, no one is justified by their good works. Why? Because the standard is absolute perfection. The doers of the law, the doers of the law shall be justified. Perfect, perpetual obedience in thought, word, Indeed, God is a holy God. His standard is a holy and perfect standard. Romans 3 verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. My friends, according to Paul, this knowledge of sin by the law, this day of wrath that is looming, is an essential component of the biblical gospel. He says at the very end of our scripture reading, verse 16, that in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now my time is gone. I'm just going to summarize this briefly. But the day of wrath is an essential component of the biblical gospel. If it is not proclaimed, the gospel is not proclaimed. The day of wrath. We don't like to think about it. And I don't think I or any other preacher really, for the most part, we don't have some uh, desire to talk about people being under the wrath of God for eternity. But this is an essential, necessary component 
of Paul's Gospel and of the biblical Gospel. Because it shows us our need for a Savior. Why do we need a Savior? 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, to save us from the wrath of God. Jesus, who saves us from the wrath of God. You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Don't believe a Gospel that is not first and foremost grounded in salvation from sin, from shame, from guilt, from wrath, and from hell. That fundamentally is why Jesus came into the world. If we don't believe in a day of wrath, or we soft-pedal it, or pretend it's not there until it overtakes us, my friends, we, we just are not clicking with the biblical Gospel. We need a Savior from sin. And that salvation is... The nature of it is proclaimed and reflected in this day of wrath. We need a Savior who would redeem us from the curse of the law. Who would endure the wrath of God. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Who would take our sin upon Himself. The wrath that we deserve at the last day. And would bear it for us on the cross. A Savior who would obey the law of God perfectly unto death on the cross who would be our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's the only Gospel that saves. Uh, We need a Gospel that proclaims redemption. Redemption, the purchase, the, the, the legal righteousness, the satisfaction of the law of God. Jesus did it. In addition, this Gospel includes the day of wrath as an essential component Because of the Lordship of Christ. We will never fully appreciate the Lordship of Christ until we understand that the same Savior who saves us from the wrath to come will be the appointed agent of that same divine wrath against sin. He says the secrets of men will be judged by Jesus Christ. And so when the Gospel is proclaimed to you here this morning, understand, Jesus is calling you to salvation, but Jesus will hold you accountable to your response. If you think you can turn your back on Jesus this morning and reject this Gospel and reject the mercy that He's offering you here today, if you think you can do that and just leave Jesus in your rearview mirror, understand, you're going to be standing before the same Savior that you've rejected. He will be standing there. The one who offered you grace this morning and you turned your back will be standing there to hold you accountable and reveal your secrets. What a glorious, what a transcendent Lord and King. It also enables us, this day of wrath enables us as believers to wrestle with the day of judgment and to find hope. My friends, because of the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, every believer here today is liberated from the fear of death, the fear of wrath, the fear of the judgment of God. We can pray, hasten the day of Your coming, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come today. Come tomorrow. Come. Accomplish Your purpose in history. And come and bring in this great day of wrath. Because for us, it's not a day of wrath. It's a great day of entering into the joy of our Lord. My dear friends, this day is our great and glorious hope according to Paul in Titus 2. This is the thing that we long for, the hope of the glory of God.
Why? Because we're righteous in Christ. Because we don't fear that wrath. Because we know that wrath, it is finished and it has been endured on the cross. My dear friend, to the Jew first, also to the Gentile, God offers this grace to everybody here today. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask that You would give us knowledge here this morning, knowledge of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come, and that You would point our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would look to Him and be saved, that we would have our fears removed, and that we would have peace and joy and encouragement shining into our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.